In this episode of Green Signals, the railway podcast, managing lineside vegetation, and it's a lot more complex than any of us thought. Should the remaining section of the Borders Railway, south from Tweed Bank to Hoyk and on to Carlisle, be rebuilt? And if not, given the runaway success of the first section from Edinburgh, why not? Five years after announcing its reversing beaching initiative, what exactly has been achieved? The Green Signal's verdict is, at best, very little. we look at why. And a good news story to warm your heart involving a vintage train set. Hello, and welcome to Green Signals from me, Nigel Harris, and... Me, Richard Bowker. Here again to talk about trains, our favourite thing. If you're enjoying Green Signals, please give the episode a thumbs up. And if you're watching on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. It's completely free um, and it really does help us to grow the show and do lots more of what you want and enjoy. You can also visit greensignals.org, our website, and sign up to our mailing list so that we can let you know when we publish each new episode. And of course, let you have some exclusive content when we've got it. It's a slightly different show this week as it's half term. So Steph's away with her family, having a fantastic time in a rather damp Lincolnshire. Um, visiting the sadly non-flying as yet Lancaster bomber Just Jane at the Lincolnshire Aviation Heritage Centre. And then on to see the only flying Lank in the UK, one of only two in the world, at the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight at Coningsby. And I know you've got all three of your teenagers at home, Richard, for half term. Doubtless a pleasure, but a handful at the same time. So it's all rather mad. But we didn't want to miss a week. So here we are, leaner and shorter, but still perfectly formed. At least, we hope. <laughs> Indeed. I'm not sure about having teenagers back home. Yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been quite exciting the last couple of days. I bet it has. Um, we, we, uh, one thing that's lovely is we still keep getting these incredible comments. Actually, Don't I, we I tell just... you what. Well, they're growing, and yes. we apologise. It, it sometimes it just takes ages to get round to the you know the dozens of them. So forgive us. Um, but there was this one from um, uh, an old mutual friend uh, for both of us, actually, John uh, Veach on on X, who was this was lovely from John. Your fabulously factual and researched, honest weekly programmes are now a firm part of my working week with a dedicated slot in my diary. Oh, well, we thanks, John. Yeah, it was lovely. So last week, Tony Wilson said we were fascinatingly fabulous. And this week, John has raised uh, the linguistic level with uh, fabulously factual. So that's great. You can't beat a bit of effing alliteration, can you? John also asked, well, <laughs> just shows the attention people pay. John also asked where my, <clears throat> excuse me, heritage BRML mug is and your D345 mug, Richard. Well, I have it here this time. There it is. Um, just for you, John, got the coffee in it. Um, <clears throat> in actual fact, just as a side note, Richard, um, given the amount of time I was on rail and the amount of coffee mugs that people did as promotions, I have a huge collection. You know, the LNER, go, let's go round again for the last HST in 2019. Burst Rails 2005, winner of the National Rail Awards. And the oldest of the lot, which is probably archaeological, is a res mug. Now, that was red, was that 47, but it's been through the dishwasher that many times. <laughs> it ain't now. 
So, speaking of mugs, I'm hoping ours come along soon, Richard, but we all live in hope. We always hope to have an appropriate one in hand. <laughs> we do. Well, both being from the north of England, you know, you can't be without a brew, can't you? Um, actually, uh, apologies um, to, to folks. I think you've probably noticed we've thrown everybody's diaries a bit out this week. Uh, we've done an episode on Tuesday early this week, and we've done an episode today, which is a Thursday when we're recording this. Now, you, you may listen on a completely different day anyway, so it probably doesn't matter. Um, but um, we will. Uh, it, it was because I went out uh, with uh, Nick Millington, and we just thought it'd be great to get that that video up um, of our, my trip to Wales and Borders, which we'll talk about. Um, so, but yeah, if you've subscribed to the channel, you'll always get a notification, so you'll never miss anything anyway. You've been out and about on the railway in that first, as you say, of what we hope will be a major series of new videos we've christened The Railway Explained. And we'll aim to cover in a wide range of stuff. So, where did you get to? What did you see? Tell all. Right. right. Well, it, it was, it was um, a, a fantastic trip. So I went out with Nick Millington, uh, MBE, who is the route director for Wales and Borders, which is a massive region. So it literally covers the whole of Wales. So, you know, from uh, – and you can imagine what that is. So you, you cross over – you cross under the tunnel at Seven Tunnel, and then, and then it's, it's everything up to the edge of Merseyside, Anglesey, uh, West Wales, and so on. Big Huge. variety of railways then. And I think that was the point. It was massively diverse. So you've got, uh, you know, electrified lines. You've got commuter lines, you know, commuter lines and... branches, freight, you, you name it. They, they, they've got it. It was amazing. Um, and what was interesting was just how, um, you know, it, clearly it's increasingly tough to to run this infrastructure and and that 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 was very um that was very obvious um what we went to see we uh actually started in england which technically wasn't on his patch but um it was fascinating to see since we were passing it so i went to see uh, a lagoon that they've built which holds about 11 million liters of water it's very exotic doesn't it yeah yeah it's basically just a big hole really that fills up when the rain comes but It's 11 million litres of water, which, which incidentally is, is, is the same amount they pump out the seven tunnel every day, right? every day. Right? Um, but this lagoon is designed to effectively act as a, as a as sump so that when it's heavy rain, it fills up rather than goes on the track and then they pump it out when, when it's safe to do so. Um, it's not big enough, which is extraordinary. So the other day um, he sent me a picture of it um, over, overtopping and, you know, and the flooding really? chipping sobri. Yeah. So there's, the serious challenges caused by right? it's fantastic what they've done, but it's just getting more of a challenge all the time. We then went to uh, Seven Tunnel Junction and uh, chatted about some of the uh, things they've done there in terms of uh, vegetation clearance and where they've been successful. And then we went out to look at um, uh, a foot crossing, um, so not a full blown uh, level. I mean, it is a level crossing, but it's for, for foot, foot, you know, for foot um, footpath, yeah, footpath. That's a place called Brinigwinham, which is near Llanharan, just between, um, not far from Bridgend, where because of vegetation issues, there's a um, temporary speed restriction, which limits the line speed from, well, the line speed is 75, and this speed restriction drops it to 50 because of sight lines around uh, a bend, um, because of trees, which they can't easily get rid of because they need an ecology license and there's evidence of dormice and, 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 right. And what I kind of, you, you kind of got to watch the video. In fact, the, the video is 
if I say it myself, it's really interesting, mainly because of what it Nick is. said and it what is. he explained. <clears throat> and I had not realized just how complex it was to get these licenses. Um, and Nick was very careful. It, to, he was not saying we shouldn't worry about any of the ecology. He was saying the opposite, actually, which was we should care, but we're all living in silos and we need to kind of raise it up a level because what's happening is we're not using the railway for its, its most effective and it is an environmentally friendly, sustainable form of transport and we're not doing it because we've, we've kind of got a little bit of sort of siloed thinking that's not enabling um, uh, okay. get, get these licenses. And some of these licenses were taking two years, three years. I mean, it was, uh, it, it was incredible. It was quite torturous a process. And my whole conclusion was that, you know, Network Rail are a competent body. They've got the people. They've got the ecologists. They do things carefully and properly. Now I thought, why aren't they allowed to self-certify? Yeah. Yes, be audited. That's fine but self-certify so that they can manage their programs, their contractors, their possessions, all of that kind of stuff, and get the job done. Interesting fun fact, um, if, you, if you cut an ash tree down as part of a program which has been properly managed when it's safe to climb and all the rest of it, you're saying about £200 a tree. If you don't properly manage it and it's entirely reactive and the tree's dead or dying and you can't climb it safely – you're looking at around about £5,000 a tree, a factor of 25. And that's our money. That's taxpayers' money. That is <clears throat> money that we could be spending on doing other things. So it was fascinating. Got to watch the video. I, I, I was just going to say that very thing because, Nick, some of the things he says are, are, are gobsmacking in terms of some of the stats like the one you've just quoted and the procedures they have to go through. And I, I have to say, this is an area in which I've got considerable sympathy with Network Rail. I mean, after all you've just said, how on earth do you plan a possession when you don't know whether you've got a license coming through or not? Um, well, you can, but then you might have to cancel it. Cancel and that, it the last and that, minute. And that costs money. It messes uh, the train operators around. Every, everybody loses, really. So it's Well, yeah. that's right. And you, you've got machinery and all the rest of it. And if it's all going to be done again. So, yeah, the self-certification would save a fortune and make things a lot better. I yeah. mean, just uh, real hot off the press this week. I mean, look at that landslip um, at Coventry that brought the West Coast Main Line to a complete standstill. Uh, a complete standstill. A standstill. Is there any other kind? Um like waiting for the train to come to a complete stop. That always winds me up when you're on a train. Is there any other kind? Um, <clears throat> but there is an increasing number of very significant, unbudgeted stuff has to be done like that, um, all within the confines of the control period settlement, hasn't it? And I do have a lot of sympathy with Network Rail. How on earth do you get all that done? And then if you're going to run out of money to do the stuff that you're supposed to be funded to do as well, it's it's very difficult. And yeah. that self-certification would make a real difference, wouldn't it? I think so. I think um, so, yeah. Um, we're going to be doing more of these videos, Nigel, aren't we? Um, so we've created this little playlist on YouTube called The Railway Explained, where um, this video with Nick is and there'll be others coming along as well. And we're just going to do lots and lots of stuff like this. It's a lot of fun. It's really interesting. Um, and I learned a load, and so hopefully other people will too. Indeed. With your Monseldale one, you're two ahead of me now. I'm going to have to whip my gimbal out and get <laughs> shooting, aren't I? I think, yes. uh, <laughs> now, the Cumbrian Railways Association, one of my favourite groups, 
has a relatively low national profile. No surprise there. But it's a cracking grassroots organization that alongside its superb photographic archive, top quality historical research, lecture meetings, and really good quality book publishing, it also quietly but relentlessly campaigns on local rail issues and more strength to them for that. They are very energetic, and we've put their membership details on the website because they're a great group to be a member of, even if you're not in Cumbria or specifically interested there. Good stuff. Now, their digital newsletter popped into my inbox recently, and one story in particular caught my eye. Progress on the feasibility study to reopen the rest of the Borders Railway. South of the current terminus at Tweedbank, through Hoyk and onwards, through all that wild country to Carlisle. Now, ever since the Borders Line was opened by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II between Edinburgh and Tweedbank on September the 9th, 2015, it's been a roaring success, but maybe Richard doesn't think so, I don't know, with passenger numbers rapidly outstripping the forecast. This prompted Chrysler enhancing the railway with more double track. For cost reasons, a chunk of the reopened line was inexplicably too many designed as single track railway, including bridges, which would make doubling a costly move. Anyway, following this success, the campaign has continued to reopen the entire Waverley route through the borders to Carlisle with a tenacious and well-organised campaign for borders rail in the vanguard. The CRA reports that the two governments involved have now signed off funds for a feasibility study and a project manager is soon to be appointed. Now, without even asking, I just know that our very own Victor Meldrew will have a strong view. So buckle up. Richard? Victor Meldrew, I think that's a little little harsh, right? Um, Look, you've made some great points there. It has been a success. The trains are busy. Um, I don't know what the loads are throughout the day, but certainly, you know, peak periods, they're, they're very popular and it has undoubtedly improved access from, you know, Tweed Bank, Gala Shields and, and places in, uh, up the line into Edinburgh. So there's no, you know, you'd be foolish if we said anything differently to that. There's a but coming, I can hear it. Well, it cost an absolute fortune to do it. And so there's always the question, I mean, twice what it had, what the estimates were when um, uh, the SRA said no to it, um, whenever we did say no to it. So what did it cost? Uh, it was something in the order of three hundred and thirty, three hundred fifty million pounds, and I don't think okay. that includes OPEC. So, um, so the question is always: is it, we, we accept it's delivered something, but was there a more cost-effective way of delivering it than that? Now, immediately, everybody's going, "Oh yes, but um, look at look at the strategic benefits it's delivered. Look at the wider economic benefits it's delivered." And and we've got to remember what Bill Reeve said when he was on. Green Signals um, a couple of months ago now. And he made a perfectly fair point and said that if you measure the benefits of the Borders Railway against almost like classical uh, transport appraisal guidance. What, Conventional what the, criteria. Yeah, what the DFT called their web tag methodology. It doesn't stack up, but that's not what we've done in Scotland, he said. In Scotland, we've got um, different uh criteria that we measure for, which are more socioeconomic. They're, they're delivering the main outcome. You know, there's, I think he's listed about four or five key outcomes that the Scottish government want to achieve. And if you measure against that, it does a, it, it delivers a positive outcome. And I said, then look, if you want to move the goalposts, oh, 
Uh, sorry, no, I said that out loud. If you want those to be your criteria, that's fine, right? Mm -hmm. What I object to and have always objected to is when people go, oh, it's just strategic. It just makes sense. You know, get it done. It shouldn't have ever shut. Those are um, not <laughs> uh, criteria against which you should measure these things. Now, I, I do always worry about a thing called confirmation bias when it comes to railway reopenings. And this actually generates quite a lot of emotion of itself. Confirmation bias is we're all guilty of it, right? I, I think Blackburn Rovers is the best team, football team in the world, despite 30 years of results pr proving mainly evidence to the contrary, right? But So I you still... look for the evidence to prove your point. <laughs> yeah, you look for the evidence to prove your point. And it's more deeply entrenched where it becomes very emotional or it's a deeply entrenched belief. And right, people who believe that certain railway lines should never have closed and should reopen again uh, do evidence it <laughs> quite, quite strongly, right? And, and it's very, very difficult, by the way, to put that put your deeply entrenched beliefs to one side and have the critical thinking skills to be able to go, well, actually, let me take the emotion out of this. Does it make sense? It's very hard to do that. And I'm not being condescending. I find it hard to do, right? Everybody finds it hard to do. But railways seem, railway reopenings seem to bring it out more than anything else. They do. But, but what I would want to know is, are we definitely capturing the full range of benefits. I mean, I've talked to Bill about this and he will say, and has said many times to me, and I've heard him say it to others, that it wasn't a railway reopening. It's a it's a tool for the development economically and socially of the borders region. Sounds great, that, doesn't it? I mean, how do you measure that, right? So, I, look, the, the fact I think the fact remains that somebody somewhere really wanted to do it, so they did. Right. And that was that somebody was a Scottish government. Yeah. Now, does that make it a bad decision? Of course it doesn't make it a bad decision, but you're still spending a lot of taxpayers' money, at least with the Borders Railway from Tweed Bank and Gala Shields and Stowe and, you know, all the Stowe, sorry. Into Edinburgh. Oh, to Edinburgh. The, I, I kind of get my head around that. Going south, um, it, it, there's two issues. Issue one is Hoick which is a town, a very substantial town in one of the most, uh, is with quite a deprived region in terms of sort of economic uh, value. And I can actually see why there would be benefit in... Well, it's got lousy connectivity, hasn't it? Yeah. But south of Hoyk, and it's quite a long way from Tweed Bank to Hoyk, by the way, actually. It's, it's, not, it's not like next door. Um, that's quite a project in itself. South of Hoyk to Carlisle, um, you, you said wild country. I did. There's nothing, right? There is nothing. And this idea that it will deliver something for Carlisle as well, I am really struggling. Now, if there's going to be yet another feasibility study, then fine. But it is. this is serious amounts of public money, and we absolutely can't do it just because someone comes up with yeah. some fluffy, wider economic... But we have, to make, jumbo, so. we have to make sure we, we capture the full range of benefits and not yeah. just some of them. I mean, lots of people will be going into Edinburgh at the moment on the existing railway and spending money in shops and hotels and pubs and bars and everything else. I see no evidence of any attempt to capture that. Um, going south from, from Edinburgh, I can see a number of words propped in now which will trigger you. Um, 
you're right, there is nothing between Hoyek and Carlisle. There's nothing be- effectively between Lancaster and Carlisle or Carlisle and Settle. Uh, but it didn't stop railways being built, which have got considerable value. So we need to be wary of that. I just want to see more evidence and it not be dismissed. And, and even Bill has dismissed it with with me, as you have, about, but there's only two sheep between, um, you said to me once, between Hoyk and Oh, thousands Carlisle. of sheep. I think I said only two people, right? Oh, right, Thou- right. Oh, sorry. Thousands of yes. sheep. Yes, you're right. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm trying not to say strategic now, but if you, st- if you look at a map, um, instinctively, I want to believe that Edinburgh is somewhere significantly off to the um, to the east of Carlisle. Well, of course, it didn't. If you look at a map, it's virtually due north. I think um, it's, is it not west of Bristol? It's it's, it's something quite extraordinary. But, but the route itself is, is, is pretty much a north south axis, and it I is. can't see how that isn't got some hasn't got some strategic value rather than grinding round the curves at Carstairs. Str- strategic for what? So str- strategy. The word str- the word strategy. I knew strategic. it would trigger you. Yeah. No, no, no. But it's defined in the dictionary as a series of costed plans to deliver a specific series of objectives. It's not some, oh, um, it's not a vision. A vision's a different thing, right? A well, strange people have visions, don't yeah, they? Yeah, if it's strategic, it's quite granular, actually. I was just about to go on to say... What is the strategy I was it, just then? about to go on to say, I would want to see some sort of evaluation of what the potential is for diversionary routes for easing the congestion on the West Coast Main Line for freight. Uh, also, I, would, I just want to see all the work done before we dismiss it as being thousands of sheep and two people, which is, I think, not really. I think that's about as valuable as just saying, let's open it because we think it's a good idea. Um, but anyway, let's let's move on, shall we? As, uh, we'll well, continue. I don't know. I always quite enjoyed that. But well, <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can stick with it if you, if you like. Okay. Um, but I'm sure we'll come back to it, Richard. I'm sure we'll come back to this one. Um, but look, we ought to expand. You've touched on it in some of your some of your rather dismissive comments there. I felt. Ooh. <laughs> on the reversing beaching restoring railways initiative from the DFT, four years after Shaps announced it, I hope I'm not being too sort of simplistic here. Literally, nothing has happened that wasn't going to happen anyway. Oakhampton, it wasn't even a beaching closure in June '72, so it's annoying that Shaps keeps or other people keep billing it as a an example of reversing beaching. And Blythe-Ashington, of course, you know, the northeastern reopening there had much more to do with Nexus's highly energetic and effective Tobin Hughes than bloody Grant Chaps. Um, but, it, you know, am I being unreasonable when I said that nothing's happened and is not likely to happen that wasn't already in the mix anyway? Well, it, it, uh, no, I don't think that is unreasonable. <laughs> Thank Actually, God for that. I, I, we return no, to I, agreement. Well, because the evidence is that very little's happened. Now, where we would probably differ is that when it was announced, I think I said at the time, and nothing will actually really happen, um, partly because nothing really should happen, right? It was it was a grandstanding, crowd-pleasing. It's one of those things where it, 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 you say the words beach enclosures and people start, it's like a Pavlovian response. They start you know, behaving in weird ways. And and significantly, just to interject at that point, the people who most react like that and leap into the the world of Miss Marple and villages and, you know, all the rest of it is the national media. The minute you talk about rolling back beaching, 
the national press print and broadcast completely loses all reason. Um, and this is over my time in railway journalism has come up a time or two. And I agree. It's a cynical move by the government to distract everybody from what's going on well, that's, over that's, here. That's the word. So I think it was a, an absolute distraction tactic. Right. And so they created a fund. So the fund, the restoring your railways fund, um, was was not money to reopen these things. It was money to to look at studies about maybe one day thinking about perhaps reopening some of these things. So um, when you look at those two examples you gave, interestingly about um, the Dartmoor line to Oakhampton and the what's happening in the northeast, the fundamental infrastructure is is already there. there. Is, I mean, you know, Mark Hopwood was actually running a Sunday service to Oakhampton. Um, pretty much anyway. He was. Now, what, they, now what they've done, but, um, we, we can only really talk about Oakhampton because that's the one that's actually open, is is fabulous, right? It, it is. is fabulous. And there's some stuff that's happened with bus integration and changing bus patterns that's really helped uh, open up access to and that And it's part extended of the reach of the railway Enormously. by considerable distances it, in, in Devon by bus links from the station. And they've it done a fantastic has. job working with a local authority, it has to be yeah, said. but the infrastructure was fundamentally already there, right? They relayed it all, but yes, it was. It wasn't an overgrown, sodden, abandoned track bed. No, absolutely right. So, it, But when you look at – so I, I think we need to have some – good old-fashioned green signals deep dive into some of this yeah. stuff. So at the moment, we're because we only thought about doing this sort of like yesterday, I haven't had a chance to, to to do too much yet. So this is all a bit sort of top level, but we'll we'll come back to this in future shows. But I did have a look at all the things that have been approved to be looked at. So this yes. is things that are definitely going to happen. This is things that they that got through the various SIFT rounds. The, the, there was three rounds, wasn't there? Mm. Um and some of them are. Um, I'm going to. You're going to well, say for. I'm going to be dismissive again now, but no, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Probably Ken, reasonably dismissive in this case. Reopening Kemble to Sirencester. I mean, really, really. I, anyway, but some of them are actually quite rational, but they tend to be station reopenings, or they yeah. tend to be service enhancements on existing lines, and, and they, you know, so some of the station stuff. You know, Beast and Castle, uh, Castle, I think, Tarpley and Beast and Castle Station is one of them. Good idea, right? Um, there's there's some others that are good ideas, but they're not reversing beaching, really. And that and that's the issue. The stuff that I think people get excited about, I just I just don't um, I don't, don't see it happening no. because I don't think it should happen. That's the problem. It, it's we did we did a we, I think a couple of weeks ago. Um, we talked about a thing called Everyone's Railway that the SRA wrote ah, 20 years ago. the best railway ago. document I ever saw. Thank you. In that, we said there are some things that the railway is absolutely brilliant at. And in fact, you, you, there's nothing better. So intercity, direct, high-speed, limited stop services, sensational. At the time, high-capacity, high-frequency commuter services in the major Conurbations. I know that's changed slightly with, you know, post-COVID and all the rest of it, but it's still true. Homogenous freight, you know, over long distances, absolutely sensational. But there are some things it's really not very good at in 20, well, it was, that was in 2003, but it's no less relevant in 2024. And that is, you know, 
down the branch line to little snoring or wherever it is. Now, I'm being, Imagine, how did that go? Well, I know. That was terrible, wasn't it? But what I mean is, you know, railways are good at some things yeah. and they're not so good at many other things. And a lot of this slightly whimsical stuff yeah. uh, in re- reversing beaching is not, is just not Hence appropriate. Hence my Miss Marple reference, you know, because... Yeah, that was, I like that. That was, that was, that was quite a good one. I'll tell you one thing, though and I'm going to sound as if I've done a complete U-turn now. One of the things I found on the Restoring Your Railway list of projects, there it is, uh, was uh, looking at uh, reinstating rail access to devices via a new station at... uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. If you're from Wiltshire, I apologise. It's either Lidway or Lideway, and I'm sorry, I've probably got both of those wrong. So I thought, oh, that's quite interesting because I don't live too far from Devizes. Um, I'll find out a bit more about that. On so the Barks I, and Hans. It's it, Yeah, so anybody's not sure, uh, Devizes used to have its own railway line, actually, that closed. Um, but Devizes, the town, is quite close to the Barks and, main, Barks and Hans main line, so between Pusey and Westbury, right? So it's a very, very busy piece of high-speed railway. So I had a quick look at the interim feasibility study for Devizes Gateway, which was published in March last year. I'm holding it as a camera. There it is. It's quite a big document, right? For those of you listening in black and white, Richard has just sifted through. Yeah, sorry. sorry. If you're listening to this and not on YouTube, then I have just sort of leafed through a 40-odd page document. Um, the executive summary says, it's quite, it's, it's, by the way, from what I've read, I've skimmed it, it's well written, okay? But it talks about... Um, you know, the economic activity in the area, and it talks about the benefits and so on and so forth, all all solid stuff. It then says this, cost advice is that the station could be delivered for circa 52.2 million to 65.7 million. What? That's a double track station? Yeah, including Westbury Platform Zero. So so they need another platform. They basically need a turn-back facility, I think, at Westbury, so that if you can run a stopping service. Oh, okay. Yeah. But 65.7 million, that was 12 months ago. So we've had a bit more inflation since then. That'll be 100 now. <laughs> and there's a bit of me goes, hang on a minute. Um, having I said re- that I'm not sure about reopening our railway lines, this is 70 million nearly. For, it's outrageous, uh, isn't it? I'm struggling to compute the numbers. Yeah. I, I really am. So that needs looking at as well. And it, We've got to find it. Um, um, we've got to find a more cost-effective way of being able to get more of these services. You know, the stations reopen and stuff like that. Because that kind of number, that even even I'm as an economist looking at that, going, oh, that doesn't that doesn't that just doesn't feel right. A couple of questions. One: Did you have all that and have to you know squeeze down on outrageous costs when you got platform four at Swindon rebuilt, which was one of your achievements? Um, and secondly. As you just said then, your words, it's a high-speed main line. Does it make sense to reintroduce a stop into all that with its impact on capacity and performance and everything else? Because there's no way we're going to build a station with loops so that it's got fast lines through so it doesn't interrupt the uh, the rest of the railway's business, is it? That's an excellent point. I mean, people forget this. They say, oh, we'll have a new station here and a new station there. Well, you've got to decelerate. You've got your stop at your dwell time. You've got your acceleration again. And whilst you're doing that, everything that was non-stopping through it, is, is, there's, there's, a, there's a slot been used. So that is a very, very full, fair point. And actually, in this devices study, it talks about 
there are challenges in capacity on the Barks and Hans main line, and that's one of the reasons why you know it, 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 there could be some negative impacts of that. Fair yeah. enough, right? Um, your Swindon Platform Four uh, question is a very good one. So Swindon Platform Four, for those who aren't aware, oh, forty years ago, as part of a rationalisation by British Rail, uh, they took out a platform at Swindon, and so everything that was uh, going on the down fast, down so Lon- London to Bristol or London Westbound, to or westbound stoppers. Sorry, thank you, westbound. Right, had to cross over the. Uh, the eastbound main line to London to access a platform that was on the other side of that, right? So it, it absolutely, excuse my French, knackered uh, stopping patterns and capacity through Swindon. So we put, we did a number of projects. One was Swindon Platform 4. So we reinstated the westbound platform, which you can see there now. And it was a test case that John Armit and Ian Coucher and uh, and I did SRA and Network Rail to say, we've got to find a faster, smarter, cheaper way of getting these things done. Now, in the end, it wasn't especially cheap, but I can't remember the exact numbers, and it is 20 years ago now. But we got it done in literally next to no time, and we did that. And I we remember. Re- we redoubled the tracking, the, the Great Western Main Line in Cornwall between Probus and Bungalow. That was also part of that same group of projects, and they all got done in – you know, literally no time compared to today. So it can be done. But you need somebody to get the project by the throat and to properly lead yeah. and to and to, to squeeze the cost down, doesn't it? Yeah. No, oh, very I, interesting. But, but that business about perturbation of ongoing things, because you said yourself a minute or two ago that what the railway does well is long-distance intercity, non-stop traffic. Well, there's a reason why places like Little Bytham, Corby Glen, Garstang and Catterall, Shap Station – on the east and west coast main line shut because they were not to put too fine a point on it by growing up by long distance traffic, weren't they? Yeah, but devices, right? And that could do the is, same. Well, devices is not Garstang and Catterall with with the greatest respect it's to Garstang. It's a stopping, it's a station on it a double is. track main line. That's yes, my it point. is, and and that's a fair point. But it is a it's a big place, right? Yeah, um, it's a wealthy not, place. It's 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 not yeah it's not it's, but it's not that actually that far to go to Chippenham either, uh, no. which has got a half hourly service. So. It's quite a complicated thing, but the point I think we are, uh, also, well, certainly I'm trying to make, um, is that none of these things are going to happen if it's going to cost £65 million. So although I I know I sound like Victor Meldrew when it comes to rail reopenings, please be, please be assured that's only because I can't bear, oh, well, because it's just a good idea, right? I know. That's we've, why. We've, we've touched on this before, Richard, and you've but, made exactly the same point. <laughs> but I actually have a lot of sympathy with the campaigners I know. when the railway comes back and says 65 million quid for, a, for, a, for two platforms. You well, go, do you oh, remember oh. Soham, a single-track, single-platform station, 20 million quid? Yeah. yeah. And then we build Kenilworth and don't use it. You know, so anyway, um, thanks for your that rather wishy-washy and vague view, Richard. I think, you should, <laughs> I think you should stop beating about the bush and tell us what you really think. I suspect there'll be a fair few comments in response to what we've both said, and I look forward to that, uh, including some disagreement, not least from me, obviously, on some aspects at least. So please feel free to give us your views. But before we move on, if you want to see Richard in full afterburner Meldrew mode, just suggest reopening the peak main line through Derbyshire. <laughs> You're such a wind-up merchant. But, but 
but look, right, you've 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 pressed the button now. Right. That's Boom. another classic example of here, here come the afterburners. No, it's another classic example of um because it's just the right thing to do, right? Uh I, I, I'm a member of a Facebook group um that does old where there's a guy that he publishes old photos of the line. Uh, this fantastic. I mean, and it's a wonderful historical archive, and some of the pictures are just fabulous. But I nearly I nearly unfollow it on a regular basis because every time he puts, you know, a picture of a train going over Monsal Viaduct, I can guarantee that this Pavlovian response of people going, criminal, outrageous, get it reopened, put the trap back, it should be a railway again. And you just kind of go, oh, please. It, it's, it, and that is, it's their well-held beliefs, right? These uh, Back to this passion again. But it, it's, there's got to be a better framework for looking at these things. And, and I think there is now, and I take your point about Borders Railway. I just think that when the government, any government, says things like we're going to reverse beaching it, it's it's unfair on people because and it's a, it is a distraction anyway it's a massive I, distraction having proved my point richard i think we should <laughs> i think we should move on why don't you do the quiz oh should we do the quiz right okay um <laughs> you know you're, you're a terror right okay on to the quiz so i do enjoy these pods i know you know i know um so the question was last week uh, what took place on British Railways for the very last time on the 30th of September, 1972? See, so, my guess, without looking it up, and I know now I'd have been wrong, was the last run of the Brighton Bell. Which a couple of people said, and was a, I think it was a good shout, um, but you're right. You would have I been was wrong. wrong. You were wrong. <laughs> um, so the first um, person with the correct answer this time was Paul Darlington um, uh, on YouTube, who correctly said it was the last run of the London to Paris um, leg of the Golden Arrow, and that took place on the 30th of September 1972. So it was the Golden Arrow. So it was a last run of something, and it was on the southern region, but just a different service. So well done, Paul. One of the most romantically named trains, wasn't it? La Flèche d'Or. Uh, yeah, when the, mm. when the Worth Valley got City of Wells going back in 1981, um, and it appeared for the first time with what the support crew used to call the big toothpicks um, on the side. Those oh, that's right. yeah. I mean, it just looked stunning. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. the very image of the rail travel being an occasion. Brilliant. No, I yeah. remember the. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. No, anyway, fantastic. on you go. Sorry, I interrupted. No, yeah, quite all right. Um, uh, no change there. Then. Uh, so this. So <laughs> well, this I have week... to. Once you start, I can't get in. <laughs> well, you've said two words today that I. It's like, I'm like one of those sleeper spies, aren't they? In those Cold War films, you said reversing beaching, and I go off. Right? Boom. Um, yeah. Okay. So this week's question in 1939. Um, uh, you may remember this now, don't you? In 1939, which LMS locomotive was shipped to the USA to be exhibited at that year's World's Fair and tour America, uh, American railroads? So I'll just Good say one. again. Yeah, it's a, it's a great one, this. Um, in 1939, which LMS locomotive was shipped to the USA to be exhibited at that year's World Fair and tour America's railroads? If you think you know, uh, usual um, pack drill, 
put your answer on uh, X or on uh, YouTube or send us an email. But first one, first one wins. I shall look forward to it. And we'll close with our new section of positive news at the end of the pod, which looks at some maybe whimsical stuff that didn't make the big headlines, but which are really interesting. And if this one doesn't warm your heart, you have a heart of stone. Excuse me. On January 13th, the BBC reported that a woman had travelled across the country to give a Lincolnshire boy a model railway set kept in storage since the death of her nephew 58 years ago. If it's still in the original packaging, by the way, that'll be a collector's item. Anyway, Val Wilkinson saw the 11-year-old Alfie from Bourne, just up the road from me in Lincolnshire, talk about his hobby on BBC Breakfast. The 75-year-old travelled from her home in Hertfordshire to donate the set which belonged to her nephew, John, who died of cancer. In 1966, Mrs. Wilkinson said she wanted Alfie to have the trains after his interview had melted her heart. She said, the trains have been sitting in the loft and I feel so much better knowing Alfie has it and that he'll look after it. Alfie, who is a member of the Market Deeping Model Railway Club, was delighted with the gift. He said, I've always wanted a nice steam locomotive. I don't have an enormous layout at home, so I can't have a really big train, but a smaller one. To pull coaches or coal is something I've wanted. Alfie first became interested in model railways when his granddad introduced him to the hobby. He's one of more than a dozen youth members, which is really great to hear, of the Market Deeping Model Railway Club. And you may remember, Richard, a few years ago, Sir Rod Stewart famously donated £10,000 to the club in 2019 after vandals broke in and wrecked, I think it was an exhibition or their club room, um, which again was another good story. So the market deeping model railway club breaching the headlines again there. Well done them. Did you? We've never talked about this, Richard. Did were you ever into model railways? I did have a, a layout, yeah, um, that I um, did with my my dad. Um, I never I never quite had the time, or never made the time to to do it particularly seriously. But uh, I did have one. I've still got some of the rolling stock. You'll be delighted to know one of the things I treated myself to a few years ago was a model um, of a Class uh, 105 Cravens DMU, which reminded me of uh, the railway lines back home. Well, we both used to travel from uh, to Preston to go train spotting, didn't we, a, a few years apart on an Accrington Cravens. I hope your model rattles like the real thing. I mean, from my point of view, after using <laughs> my dad's Hornby 003 rail as a boy and then a few years with trying Hornby, my dad and I switched to British Engage in the early 1970s, which was a challenge because not much was available. We did okay and enjoyed it and exhibited a layout for a few years with the Pendle Forest Model Railway Society in Nelson, which taught me a great deal, and not just about model railways. Happy days. Um, I did that until I discovered 12 inches to the foot scale steam when I was about 15 at the Lakeside Railway, which also then led to beer and girls. So that was the last time I did um, modern model railway. Maybe I'll return to modelling. Now I've got a slightly less demanding lifestyle. Well, green signals is keeping me busy. Well, I have I was to say, say. <laughs> I'm, I'm more attracted these days to 10 and a quarter inch gauge live steam. So who knows? I may treat myself something, something like that. Anyway, that's all we got time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed our half term show. Don't forget to give us a thumbs up and subscribe so you get notifications when new episodes drop. As we do more and more, that's the best way to ensure you never miss anything new. So thanks for being with us again. And uh, I've enjoyed a bit of cut and thrust with Richard on um, on the subjects we've covered today. So till next time, it's goodbye from me and... 
it's goodbye from me. 